We've been working through for several weeks now um, the idea of sharing the gospel, evangelism. We've talked about all kinds of different things revolved around that. We've shared a lot of testimonies from within the church of folks who have been born again and their experience and their walk with, with uh, the world and how Christ called them out and uh, brought them to himself and redeemed them by his blood. And so uh, we've, we've seen everything from church folks, religious folks that, that gathered together for a long time before they came to the knowledge and understanding that they were sinners and needed redemption. And we've seen folks that, that were around the idea of church or some religious activity and yet kind of grew off into the world and grew up under the world's training. And, and uh, we've seen a lot of different experiences. And I really believe today is going to be a, a tremendous testimony from one of our folks um, of exactly how God can reach and what God can do. And I want you to, if you're listening to this today and you're not a part of our church family, uh, maybe you're just catching this uh, online and, and you're listening, but you don't know Christ. I want you to listen to this testimony today from our brother who can share with you that God can and will reach no matter where you are. And he can pull you out of the depths of despair and place you on solid ground. I'm excited today to have our brother, Sam Harmon, come. And so, Sam, you come on up and you share what God has put on your heart and uh, share your testimony. It's an awesome testimony um, from a great guy that loves Jesus. So, Brother Sam, it's all yours. Thank you. If you have a Bible, please turn it to Mark chapter 5. Now, I'll be reading from the New American Standard. It reads, They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat immediately, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to employ him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine, so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirit entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them. 
and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to employ him to leave the region. And he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. The scripture I just read, I, I read for a, a purpose and for a reason. You see, I am that man. And this is my Decapolis. I am that man that was in that tomb. I was that man that was possessed. I am that man that was demon controlled. I am that man that only knew death. And only knew violence, hate, drugs, sex. The things that controlled me and the things that I, I kept. I am that possessed man. But May 1st, 1983, I woke up in my little camper trailer. And the Lord spoke to me, and, and you know it was amazing because when he spoke to me, I knew exactly who it was. I didn't have to question it. I didn't have to say, who are you? I knew who was speaking to me. And he said, go to church. I said, oh, no, Lord, I can't go to church. I stink. They don't want me in church. He said, Sam, go to church. I got up and I, I guess that old Johnny Cash song, some of you will know it and some of you won't, that said I put on my cleanest dirty shirt. That's what I put on. Because see, I didn't have any running water, but I had booze. I didn't have any clean clothes, but I had drugs. Because those were the things that was most important to me. So as I got dressed and I, I walked out to the road, and I don't know how much of you know about Palaka, but I, I lived off of Moody Road, so I walked up to the, to the hard road. And I stood there and I said, well, Lord, now which way do I go? And he said, go right. I said, oh, no, Lord, I ain't going right. I'll go left. Because, see, I, I knew what was down there at the end of the left. I'd only been in Palaka two weeks. And it was amazing that I found a drug dealer and a place where I could buy my liquor and my beer. It always amazed me how a, a, a drug addict can find a drug dealer faster than a Christian can find a church. But he said, no, I said, go right. So I went right and I went down and Moody Road comes into Silver Lake Drive in a, in a T. 
And I'm standing there and I say, well, now what, Lord? There ain't, there ain't no church down here. What'd you walk me down here for? He said, take a right. And I took a right and as I did, there was a, a big, I think it's an elm tree and it just kind of folded back. And the little white church called Trinity Baptist came into view. And I went inside. I sat down in pew number five. And I tell you that for a reason. Because, see, nobody sat in pew number four. Nobody sat in pew number six. Nobody shook my hand. Nobody welcomed me. Everybody just stared. But before the sermon was over, before the altar call was given, before the last hymn was sung, I was on my knees in between pew four and five. At that time, I really didn't understand what was going on. I have to be honest with you. I didn't know what I was on my knees for. I didn't even realize who took me to my knees. I do now, and I know it was the Holy Spirit. But I just had a strong urge. I had to get on my knees, and I had to talk to God. And I had to confess. And I knew this for sure. The same man that went down was not the same man that got up. My hate for the world was gone. My hate for mankind was gone. You see, up until that little flash, that instant second, that split, that bat of an eye. Until then, I hated myself and everyone else in me. Everyone. If you didn't have drugs and you didn't have a bottle or a beer, I didn't care to associate with you. And to be honest with you, after the, the drug was gone or after the beer was gone or after the booze, I didn't care to associate with you then either. If you didn't have something to feed me, then I didn't want nothing to do with you. Now, I want to explain to you what brought me to that situation and how I was saved. You see, when I was seven, I can remember it was a Saturday morning because I can remember the cartoons were playing. You all remember, some of you are old enough to remember that Saturday morning cartoons. By God, that was when you grabbed you a bowl of cereal, you sat down on the floor, and you ate them, them Cheerios or them Wheaties or whatever it was you had. And you know that's where we was at. And my mom and stepdad number three was out in the front yard fighting as they had been doing all night long when she stabbed him. She run in the house and she shut the door. And he run in to the door and he was banging on the door and he was begging her to open the door up. And every time he would try to get his keys out of his pocket, she, she just cut him right up the arm. The blood would pump up on the nine-pane window and it would run down. And I got up to, to let him in. When she waved that butcher knife at me and she said, I wouldn't do that, you little bastard. I'll cut you too. 
She didn't realize it at the time, but at that time, she planted that seed of hate and violence in me. And it grew. Oh, it was well watered and well fertilized through my lifetime. Because, see, I had learned something. I had learned violence would not only get me what I wanted, but would also give me control. By the time I was 12, I can remember my stepdad, number four. He drug us to a, a 4th of July party. And I had had beer before. I'd, but that night I politely got drunk. And I'm over the fence and I'm heaving my guts out. I'm not but 12 years old and I am one sick puppy dog. And when I raised up from the fence, he was standing there beside of me. And he said, you know, a real man would drink another one. So I drank another one. Because what 12-year-old boy don't want to be a man? By the time I got home, I, I don't know which one of them, my, my stepdad or had more scratches or my mother had more bruises, but they beat each other all the way to the house. It got to the point to where our house really became an embarrassment. In fact, the kids in school used to ask me if they could buy tickets to the fights. Because, see, they knew if there wasn't a fight on a Friday night, they would be one on a Saturday night because they would get drunk and they would be a brawl. The cops would be called. And it got to the point to where the cops even knew the house and knew the call, and they would just come and take whatever stepdad at that time put him in the car and drive him out 10 or 15 miles and drop him off and tell him to walk home. By the time he got there, he'd cool off. But the hate and the violence continued to grow. By the time I was 14, I was out of control. The seed that had been planted was now well-grounded and was beginning to flourish. Because, you see, now I had become the beater instead of the beating. Now I had become the controller instead of being controlled. By the time I was 15, my hate was so much in a rage, I was thrown out of the house. And to be honest with you, I, I don't blame my stepdad because he threw me out of the house because I was trying my best to kill him with a baseball bat. And if he couldn't have ran faster than I would have, I would have. Needless to say, I was made to leave. Now I would learn that old saying of when you jump from the frying pan to the fire, what it would mean. Oh, don't get me wrong, Satan was good to me. Oh, Satan was good to me. That afternoon I had a job. Pumping gas. By that afternoon, I was employed. And I was going to show the world. But you see, the, the nice guy that gave me my job. And the nice guy that was going to give me a place to live until I could get on my feet. That nice guy took me home and molested me. Because, see, he worked on that fear 
and not having no place to go. He worked on that fear of a child, thinking he was a man. But the bad part of it was that, to be honest with you, he didn't get what he wanted. But see, my sister had taught me all about sex long before that. So I, 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 I was already good to go. He wasn't getting the virgin he was after. He wasn't getting that young little boy. But now the hate and the violence continued to grow. You see, Satan had me right where he wanted me. I was so ashamed of what I was doing to just keep a place to live, to stay off the streets. That now I went to doing drugs. And in order to do drugs, I had to steal. And it was funny because it was a constant circle. Because see, the, the more I hated myself, the more drugs I did, the more I had to steal, the more I hated myself. And the circle continued. And the hate grew. Yeah, Satan was now in control. When I was 15 and a half, my, my mother had me picked up as a runaway. And the morning we went in front of the, the judge, I can remember him saying, Ma'am, I need to know what took you six months to turn your son in as a runaway. And she said, oh, Your Honor, I think we have a misunderstanding. He said, what do you mean? She said, oh, she said, I don't want the little bastard back. I just don't want to be responsible for him. And the judge then emancipated me. And I'll never forget these words that he said to me. He said, Mr. Harmon, you need to understand this. If you come to my courtroom, you will be treated as an adult. Do you understand me, Mr. Harmon? And we left the courtroom. There was no goodbyes between me and my mother. There was no sorry. There was no kiss on the cheek. But she did have a smirk on her face. Because she was no longer responsible for me. But something happened that day. That at that time I did not realize. My hate and my violence now was fueled by hurt and pain. Now that violence and hate had made that complete circle. And now there was nothing going to stop me. Because now I wanted everybody that I came in contact with, no matter who it was, I wanted them to hurt as I hurt. By the time I was 17 and a half, I was in prison for assault to a police officer. I would continue to ruin everything I touched and everything that touched me. Everyone that helped me, I would ruin. I spent most of the next 11 years either in a, either in a county jail or a prison or just city lockup for being publicly drunk. From everything from theft 
to willingly and knowingly causing physical bodily harm. You see, I was not only hurting myself, I wanted everybody else to hurt too. You see, I was just like Adam. I wasn't going to take the responsibility for my sin either. Now, if you give me just a few more minutes of your time, I would like to tell you what God has done with this whole life. Because I have been a child of the Most High God. Because it is awesome. Because we serve an awesome God. Now, I would like to tell you everything's been great. You know, I got saved May 1st, 1983, and from that time on, my life was just, man, royally good. But that's not the truth. You see, the man that stood up no longer hated the world, but he still had his drugs and his alcohol. He had to fight his way through. And as the Lord led me through that, believe it, it was, a, it was days and there was trials and there was times that I failed. And times that I've fallen. And times I had to get back up. The worst part was I had a record. I had a record that most people wouldn't even begin to think about hiring me. Mostly because it was a violence. It wasn't something petty ante. It was, you know, they're hired a car thief before they hire somebody that will beat somebody. It's just that simple. So I had a hard time finding a job. So I cooked here and I, I cooked there and I, I, I'd flip burgers here and I, I'd go to work as a janitor here. I'd, I'd take anything that I could get, but finally I got to where I could drive a truck. I'm not too sure that was a great idea because, see, I could run from east to west coast and the Lord was really working on me and no matter how fast I drove, he always beat me there. The faster I drove, the faster he went. And one day, me and my wife had went to run a team. And to give you an idea, when I say about driving, we was running 7,000 miles a week in less than five days. We was moving. And I was coming in out of Atlanta, coming into in a, uh, uh, Orlando, which was my normal run, and then we would go home for two days. And it was Easter. I won't forget that. And as I come out of Atlanta, some guy brought up God. And I guess it was one of them Holy Spirit moments. But I got on the mic, and if you know anything about Channel 19, you know it's filthy. It's dirty. They interrupt each other. They have no, no morals whatsoever. Believe it or not, from Atlanta to the line, the radio was solid. And my wife looked at me and she said, well, you got any more questions about what you're supposed to do? She was a very smart woman. I just wasn't smart enough to listen because, you see, I still didn't do what I was supposed to do. And then one day, I woke up in a hospital waiting for heart surgery. 
triple bypass. That was in June of 2002, and five months later, I wasn't doing any better, and they took me in for another test. And the doctor had no problem at all when he walked into my room and said, Mr. Harmon, I'm sorry, but you need to go home and get your house in order. You're going to die, and there's nothing we can do to help you. Have a nice day. And he done an about face and walked out. I still to this day do not know that doctor's name because he didn't even bother to introduce himself. They dismissed me and I went home and the next morning I got up and I will never forget this. I walked over and you know how you, you do a study Bible, you just lay it up and it falls open. I went over and poured my cup of coffee and I, I come back and I sat down at the table and I looked down at the Bible and it was at 2 Kings chapter 20. King Hezekiah. The only king you will find in the Bible that God gave a warning, get your house in order. I'm coming after you. And before Isaiah could get out of the yard, God said, go back and tell the king that I hear his prayers and I see his tears and I'll grant him another 15 years. I want you to understand it wasn't the 15 years. But God told me, I hear your prayers, and I see your tears. So me and my, my wife, we went and bought a bit and dent store and went to work because I could no longer drive. And we opened it up, and we had a round table where people could come in and sit and have coffee and and drink coffee, and we would talk about the Bible and talk about God because a lot of people would bring their parents there that came from the north because I got my supply of food groceries out of Atlanta. So they would bring their mom or their dad there, and they would like to shop at my store because they could get their Yankee products. And then the, the son or the daughter would come over and sit down at the table and have coffee while their mom or dad shopped. And one morning it was raining, and it wasn't misting like it is now. It was pouring down rain. And my wife looked at me, and the, the store was totally empty. My wife looked at me, and she said, uh, if I go to the bank, do you think you can keep from running people off? Because I wasn't real good customer-related. <laughs> so she left me there, and... I'm sitting at the round table, and I'm, I'm reading the Bible, and that same voice, that same voice said, Sam, go to the jail and preach. I slung that Bible across the table, and I got up, and I was like a wild man. I was like a lion in a cage. I was walking from one end of the store to the other. Sweat was pouring off of me. I said, oh, no, Lord, not me. I can't preach. I don't know the Bible. I can't teach. I don't know the Bible. No, no, Lord, you, no, no, not me. He said, Sam, go to the jail and preach. I said, Lord, I said, if you really want me to go to the jail and preach, you tell Ted Jones to bring me my lawnmower. You see, Ted Jones was a chaplain of the jailhouse. 
and he had borrowed my riding lawnmower. And I knew one thing I knew about Ted. He was wider than he was tall. And he was not going to load my lawnmower up in the rain. I know that wasn't going to happen. In less than 10 minutes, here come Ted with my lawnmower in the rain. I went out and I tried to get mad at him. You know, I mean, because I was mad. I, really, I, was, I was mad, but you couldn't get mad at Ted because he grinned. And as all, when he got out of his car, all you could see was this big smile. And I said, Ted, I said, what are you doing with my lawnmower in the rain? He said, oh, Sam, he said, it wasn't rain at my house. <laughs> we unloaded the, the lawnmower, and I didn't ever say a word to him. When he went to get back in his car, he said, Sam, he said, I don't have an application with me today, but I'll bring one by first thing in the morning. I had never said a word to him. He brought me the application. The next morning was a Tuesday morning. And I filled it out, and he told me, he said, I'll come back by and get it. And I flipped it over, and of course, they want your arrest record. You're going into jail. You know, they really want to know. Well, I'm going to outsmart God. I'm going to make this really plain and simple because instead of filling it out, and I'll be honest with you, I couldn't remember them when you're drunk. When you're drunk, you really can't remember all the times you've been arrested or all the times you woke up and they told you what you'd done because you don't remember what you'd done. But anyway, so when I got to the back page, I just put in too much, too long to remember. And I said, now let's see what you can do with that. He come by and he picked it up. He said, it will take about six weeks or, or, or a little longer for me to get a reply. I said, okay. I didn't say nothing about what I wrote on the back and I only prayed he didn't look at it till he got to the jailhouse. Two days later, he drove up in my store and he come in and he said, Sam, be ready to preach Saturday morning. Your application's been approved. So when I got to the to, to the jail, and there was a guy by the name of Mr. Granger. I don't think I'll ever forget this man, what he'd done to me. Because, see, we, we went out in, in, in teams, and, and the county jail has got so many cell blocks over here and so many cell blocks over there. They're, they're divided out into corridors. And you go into this set of steel doors in between them. And, man, when that door shut, I mean, tell you, my heart liked to come out of my stomach because... I, I, it had been a long time since I had heard that clank. It's a clank you never forget. But that door went clank. Mr. Granger looked at me and he said, Brother Sam, he said, you got something you want to say today? I said, no. I said, Mr. Granger, I just came here to learn. Okay. So we stepped into this long hallway of a corridor. And he said, Brother Sam, you sure you don't have something you want to say today? I said, Mr. Granger, I said, no. I just come here to learn. Okay. Well, before we went to the cell block, we had another set of steel doors to go through. And he looked at me again. He said, Brother Sam, he said, you sure you don't have something you want to say today? 
I said, Mr. Granger, don't you do this to me. I said, please, I just came here to learn. He said, okay. And he got inside and he said, when I go in, he said, I shake everybody's hand. So I went around and I shook everybody's hand. And all they had was long uh, uh, picnic tables, but they were metal. And I sat down right along with the guys. And he said, you all know me. He said, my name's Mr. Granger. He said, I've been coming here for years. He said, this here is Brother Sam. And he's got something he wants to say today. <laughs> the only thing I could really think of is, believe it or not, the same story I just told you all. I got up and gave my testimony. And when I stepped out in between them two steel doors again, I'll never forget this. Same voice. Well done, faithful servant. Well done. I like to say things got better at that time, but they didn't. You see, my wife got cancer. And your faith got tested. I went out in the front yard every morning and prayed for her to be healed to the point to where there was a dip like this in the, in the sand and the dirt. And when it rained, it would fill up with water. And I would still pray in the same spot. And one day, God answered me. He said, no. And we will discuss it no more. I said, well, Lord, if you're not going to heal her, will you please take her quickly when the time comes? I went to the jail to, to preach one Saturday morning, and one of the women from the church came in and, and sat with her. Hospice had done been called in. The bed was in the living room by the couch. I would sleep on the couch, and she would sleep in, in the bed. And I came in, and I probably got in about 11 o'clock or so, and Maxine looked at me, and she said, Sam, she went to bed about an hour ago. She said, tell you she was sorry, but she was just too tired to wait up. She got up one other time on Sunday night, and she fell. I got her back in bed Monday morning at 10 o'clock, January the 8th, 2008, she died. God has been so gracious to me. Do you hear that? I hear your prayers, and I see your tears. He's still keeping that promise. He said no, and I said, will you take her quickly? If you know anything about cancer, if you've ever dealt with somebody with lung cancer, then you know they bleed to death in their lungs, and they drowned. And it's usually a month to a six-month process. He took her in two days. He's still hearing my prayers and seeing my tears. The next Saturday was her funeral, and I was going to preach her funeral. I woke up Saturday morning, got dressed. I had more, wore a suit, and I couldn't tell you how long, but I put one on. I refused to wear the tie, but I put the suit jacket on. And the Lord said, Sam, go to the jail and preach. I said, what? I said, have you forgot I got a wife to bury this afternoon? 
He said, go to jail and preach. You can bury your wife later. So I went. You see, I got a loving God. I got a graceful God. I got a merciful God. I got a God that hears me. But I don't have that easy God. I ain't found him yet. I ain't found that easy God. I ain't found that, that God that gives me what I want. I, found, I find that God that gives me what I need. Now, I want to tell you, I've served at the Putman County Jail. I've served at UCI and, and Stark. And I've served at East Palatka. All at one time. I've gotten kind of old since then. So now I'm only at East Palatka. But you know my God is still using me because every now and then I get lucky. And I get to give my testimony to people like you. But I want you to know and understand this. I don't give it to you because I want you to feel sorry for me. In fact, feel the, feel the opposite. Because I am blessed beyond measure. I am blessed more than I could ever express. No, I tell you this for a reason. So that you know, no matter where you're at in your life, no matter how much you think you messed it up, no matter how much you have failed, no matter how many times you have fallen, no matter how deep the ditch is that you're in, that them nail-scarred hands can reach you. You see, when I dropped to my knees between pew four and five, I don't know what I said. I have no idea what I said. Hard to tell them what I was blabbering out. But I know this, God understood every word, and he read my heart. Well, see, God don't want your fancy words. He wants your heart. He says in Isaiah, come and sit down, and let's talk. Let's talk about your sin, and let me change that heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Let me help you. Come to me. Maybe you're at home, and maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Just asking. There's no special words. There's no special prayer. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing a pastor can do. There's nothing a priest can do. It's between you and God. Between you and God. And you know, maybe... You're somebody at home that's been thinking about, should I give my testimony? Maybe you need to come up here and talk about your road to the capitalist. Maybe you need to come up here and talk about what great things God has done for you. Thank you for listening. I'm going to turn it over to Steve. I love to see God work. And I love that God works in all kinds of ways. He doesn't just work in easy ways. He doesn't just work in the hard ways. He works in every way. Sam shared that you may be at home today and need to know what it means to be born again. See, that, that's really the important thing. As a matter of fact, for our church family, 
our memory verse for the month of April is John 3, 3. That memory verse says, Jesus replied, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's what happened to Sam that day between row 4 and 5. He was born again. And the way you're born again is, is really simple on our part. God does all the work. It's very simple. Admit that you need a Savior, that you're a sinner, that you're separated from God, that you have no hope on your own, you can't get there on your own. Admit that God is the only way, that Jesus is the one who can bring you to where you need to be. Believe. Believe that that you're lost and separated from God. Believe that without Jesus Christ in your life, you will continue to be eternally separated from God. Believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And that no man comes to the Father except through Him. And confess. Confess you're a sinner. Confession, I love, I love the, the biblical word confession because it doesn't mean just speaking. It means agreeing with God that you're lost, that you're separated, that you're a sinner. Confess that you need God. Confess that He is the only way. Admit it, believe it, confess it, and then commit yourself to Him. Commit yourself to Him. He will commit Himself to you. That's what it means to be born again. You can do that wherever you are. You can do that over a phone, watching Facebook. You can do it in a church. You can do it on the side of the road. Our prayer today in this room is that if you don't know Jesus, you'll understand that He'll reach to wherever you are. And He'll bring you to Himself. For there is no other way to see the kingdom of God but in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. 